Hi everyone, this is Abby. I'm here to bring you some content warnings before the beginning of this episode. We talk about sexual assault from about the 17-minute mark to about the 22-minute mark, and we talk about body horror from about an hour and six minutes to a little after an hour and nine minutes. Uh, these are our conversations about centaurs. I will put the exact timestamps in the description, but uh, make sure to skip ahead at those conversations if you need to. When I was in a coffee shop yesterday and I was reading the Kel books, or this specific Kel book, the, um, they played that song that's like, um, if you don't like girls who are stronger than you, then you might not like me. And that is a very <laughs> appropriate song to read about Kel yep. jousting to. That's so good. Can we use that instead of our theme song? We're going to have such a good soundtrack for these books. We yeah. are. Yeah. Oh my god, do we need a Spotify? Is that our next social media? The Tortal Recall Spotify? Jesus Christ. I'm gonna try and sound like enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Tortal Recall, the podcast where we reread the Tamara Pierce books and yell about them. Today we're rereading Squire, the third book in the Protector of the Small series. Uh, it was published in 2001. My name is Grace and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm kind of sick, sorry. <laughs> you have to introduce the question. Oh, sorry. And our question is, uh, what would your friends distract you with before your ordeal of knighthood? Um, this is a good question to ask me because I'm, uh, probably you too, Shelby. I have yes. finals right now, which are kind of like an ordeal of knighthood <laughs> or an ordeal of wanting to graduate college. Um, and I distract myself with Catfish, the TV show, and burritos. Mm -hmm. Nice. With my roommate, who is my friend, I guess. I No, they're very much my friends. <laughs> I'm just to clarify that that is how my friends distract me. Um, Abby, say okay. stuff. Hi. Say words Yes, now. I'm Abby. I'm sick, too. My pronouns are she, her. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel very informed because you said that the book was published in 2001, and I feel like that's the most information we've ever given about a book, like, right at the top of the episode. Yeah, I, I don't know who was typing in my document while I was typing <laughs> in my document. <laughs> But they told me to do that. That's okay. <laughs> nice job to everyone involved. I think for... Actually, I think the real answer for how I would distract myself from my ordeal of knighthood is the thing that me and Grace have done a couple times, which is have a day where we just go to a used bookstore and yeah. buy like all the very short books that we can find and then just read as many books as we can in that one day. That is a really fun day that we've had before. Yeah. We should do that when you're in town. We should do that. Um, um, but yeah, no, it's very distracting because you're trying really hard to just consume as many books as possible. And also you get to go to a bookstore, which is also fun. And read really weird books. It's been fun. <laughs> that is a really, really strange activity, but also it sounds great. I mean, I'm jealous every time Abby says it. Gus? <sighs> yes, Hi. Um, I'm Gus, and my pronouns are they, them, and let's see, um, uh, first of all, I am undistractable, I will be anxious no matter what, <laughs> um, but one good, uh, thing that I, you know, like, I, I, I love, um, I love a good, bright, 
kids TV show, mm-hmm. especially one that I haven't seen before. So probably at this point, the way to distract me from the ordeal of knighthood. Why am I taking an ordeal of <laughs> it's knighthood? It's a bad choice. Nobody let me do that. that. <laughs> I can't do the school aspect of that, let alone the knight part. Anyway, uh, would probably be, you know what? I haven't seen uh, She-Ra I yet. I'm real excited to see yeah, She-Ra. That's a good one, too. So that one. Nice. nice. Uh, my name's Shelby, and my pronouns are she, her, and uh, I'm also right before finals, so I think I can firmly say that I would distract myself with animals, which means I'm exactly like Kel, because I think she also just goes and hangs out with her, her friends, her animal friends. Uh, Actually, that's so true. She just goes and hangs out with her animals in the woods. That's exactly what Shelby would do. Yep. Yeah, so I've been curling up with Casper. Also romance novels, but uh, yeah, the last romance novel I read was not very good. So that was disappointing. Mm. Yeah, so that's who we are. <laughs> You've learned that's about us as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have two things that I wanted to do at the start of this podcast. One of them I didn't tell you guys about because I thought you wouldn't let me. Um, <laughs> okay. I wanted to say happy Hanukkah to our listeners. Uh, that one you did run by us. And I also did. we're in favor uh, of it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. You guys can also say happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Um, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to do was use this, my only public platform, to uh, congratulate Daniel Ortberg and Grace Lavery on their engagement. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> They'll never hear it, but I want to. Uh, so first adventure, we're going to talk about our original experiences with this book. Uh, and I'm going to start with Shelby because Shelby's uh, first Kel episode is this one that we're on yep. now. And that's the natural order to say that <laughs> sentence in. <laughs> Shelby, what did you think of the Kel books when you first read them, presumably as a yeah, child? So I was pretty young and I can't really remember except that clearly I loved them because I've been rereading them over and over and over ever since um but they were definitely a Christmas gift from my parents when I was younger um and my mom read all of them before me um as to like preview them um but I know she also loved them because she still to this day will give me a hard time about the fact that at some point when she was in the middle of the um climax scene of Paige when they were on the tower um I asked for for help with my homework and like this is still her proof to this day that she is a good mother is that she stopped reading that book to help me with my homework Um, and by to this day I mean last week was the most recent time (laughs) so yeah they are beloved by me and all of my family yeah very good did you do you have any particular memories of Squire this book I liked. I can tell you that as I was reading it, like every time we would come across like literally every funny line, I was like, I could recite this line by myself in my head already. Like I didn't really need to be reading this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't have particular memories of Squire, I don't think, except I remember thinking that it. I was like real cool for carrying this longer <laughs> book around um, when I was quite young. Cute. I do have, like, somewhat, I don't have specific memories of the first time I read Squire, but what I do remember is that uh, when I was reading the Kell books as a kid, and when I was reading Tamara Pierce as a kid in general, Squire was absolutely my favorite one. Um, And now I think the Kell series is definitely my favorite of the Tortall series, but it's kind of a toss-up. I think either Lady Knight or Squire might be my favorite one, but as a kid, it was like, Squire is the best Tamara Pierce book. End of story. Yeah, so that was true for right. me too. It was Squire, and now it's 
possibly Lady Knight, but maybe yeah. Swire. Well, and also, yeah. you know, if we're broadening it, we're like, will the Empress is a contender, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, I also really liked Squire, and I wonder if it might be because it's, like, exactly, it's when Cal is the right yeah. age that she's, mm-hmm. like, cool, but Yeah, not she's an not adult. an adult yet, but she's doing yeah. sort of adulty things. Yeah. What about you, Guess? Do you have memories of Squire? You know, I do, which is shocking because I haven't had specific memories of the earlier mm-hmm. two. But um, I read Squire at some point in high school, probably my sophomore or junior year. Um, that was the first time you read it and in high school? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I, started, I started reading these books at some point in like, I don't know, either middle school or early high school. And I acquired them pretty slowly because my friends were lending them to me anyway you'd think that would make it go faster but (laughs) uh yeah i don't know i I read i read this book in high school and i it's it's a book that i've i don't know if i've reread it much since then i've only reread it once or twice um and i don't think i've reread it since high school it's a book that like um as a like young queer teen who was just like figuring themselves out like I really it felt like a book about queer community to me Mm -hmm. and it still does on a reread um in ways that I can't entirely point to in the text yeah I think we'll have to get I feel that too I like but I yeah yeah I don't remember that from originally reading, maybe because I was younger. Um, but I well, think I felt that reading it this time, especially because I think I read your comment on it and then I was looking for it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, part of it is stuff that we like that I've you know since read Word of God stuff mm-hmm. has like like no spoilers beyond that. But we've already talked about how nobody in Tortal is cishet <laughs> except for Jonathan, so that's not a spoiler. Yeah, that's just canon. It's just canon. Um, but also, like, I've just, like, always read Burry and Raul as queer, mm-hmm. um, and especially in this book, so. Yeah. I like that as a lens. I think that that is, yeah, it's kind of naturally the way I read mm-hmm. it, and it, like, lends a lot to the book to me. The other thing mm-hmm. I was going to say about this is that, Abby, I don't, this isn't your copy of this <laughs> book, but I do think it's one that I liberated from your house. <laughs> um, maybe, like... Six to eight years ago. Yeah, okay. I know it's not like my uh my childhood copy because I have the good cover with the griffin on it. Um yeah. but great, you liberated it from my house, so it's not mine. <laughs> I mean I think I borrowed it and then I mean I guess what I'm saying is if you want this book back you can have well, it. Well look, but, I have um, this one right here that's the same one. Wow, so. that's identical. Yeah. So So you can great. keep it. Um all right. So our next section is going to be about world development. Don't we um, have to summarize it? Yeah. First oh, guess. yeah. Sorry. 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 I have this whole outline and apparently it's not going to be enough. <laughs> um, but uh, so next section is first test. Who wants to summarize the plot of this book? It's it's a lot to do. There's a lot of events. Yeah, this one is weird because it does feel more cohesive to me than the Alana ones that are several years. But also, I don't know what the plot is. It's just like Kel yeah. becomes an adult. Yeah. It's one of those like um adventure in books, mm-hmm. you know? So I always like those a lot. And we've talked about before how it's this is kind of also, would you say, Abby, like kind of in the romantic fantasy tradition so. of like 
going around adventuring. Yeah. Um, but they are exceptionally hard to summarize. Yeah, no, I think that this, this book reminds me a bit of like a good sampler platter. Like it fits together, but it's all different. Like you got you got mm-hmm. your little bit of like we got to fight some war. We got to like also like save some houses from a flood. Like, courtroom drama. That was part of it. Courtroom drama. Yeah. <laughs> and then some good like court like politics stuff and and the progress Mm -hmm. got some matchmaking you got a little everything Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i mean cal is uh chosen by our our large friend our large friend our large friend friend. raul of golden lake um and she's his squire so she joins the group of knights called the king's riders yes nope 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 the king's own (laughs) The King's Own. <laughs> the King's Own. She joins a group of knights called the King's Own, which everyone remembered for sure. Definitely. Um, I'm definitely leaving all of that in. <laughs> um, she learns to, she gets a griffin. She learns to joust. Um, she becomes a better strategist. She becomes a better strategist. Yeah. I mean, right. But like if on a broad level, Kel is a squire for four years. She travels around with the king's own. She learns a lot of things. She has a lot of adventures. Like, there's a lot of specifics, but, you know, most of them don't build to a larger plot. It's just that she she learns things and she becomes more of an adult, and that's what it is. Yeah, I would like to strongly recommend the Wikipedia summary that I was covertly reading. <laughs> Thank that you. does sound like it was written by an Oh, no. I, th- I love that. <laughs> um... So if you want a more uh, edifying <laughs> section of First Adventure, go read that um, now and then come back to the podcast. Um, second? Yes. Yeah, I don't think there are any other like super major things. Oh, also, I guess a running thing is that um, there's an arranged marriage that was you know talked about in the last book between uh, Prince yep. Rold and Princess Shikokami. So a lot of the book is uh, her arriving in America and... <laughs> Nope. No, America? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my God. No. Tortal. We're leaving that in, the, too. The fantasy America. Oh, I guess I also wanted to say in that section, because we sort of have it as, like, our place for just general impressions. This book really holds up for me. Like, there were a lot of places yeah, yeah. where I was just like, the writing of this is very good, and I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, there were there were also so many places where I kept going like, oh, like, this shaped my view of other books. Like, oh, this mm-hmm. thing she did well? That's a thing mm-hmm. I, like, I can't read another book if it does badly, because I, I got spoiled by this book. Yeah. Yeah, I also think part of why I don't have super concrete memories of this, reading this book, is because I read it so many times. Yeah. Um, and also, when we've talked before about reading other fantasy books, specifically uh, when we talked about Mercedes Lackey um, in the bonus episode we did about that, um, I think that's this book is really like my blueprint of like this is fulfilling fantasy to read, mm-hmm. and that's why those books feel so good to read because they feel like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just fun to reread this. I like it a lot. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think like even more than the previous ones we've read, this one just. It just, yeah, I mean, maybe it's because it's the one I read first and it's just, you know, it is my sort of default for what good fantasy of this style looks like. But there's just so many points where I'm, I, you know, 
you know, oh, that's like just really cleverly done. And I haven't had that feeling yeah. in uh, previous Tamara Pierce books that we've reread as much. Yeah. Yeah. I started getting it with um, Paige. Like some mm-hmm. of the dialogue was so good. Yeah, and that definitely. really like holds through in this book. And then we also start getting some of that like world building that feels really good. And the um, good plot. <laughs> good plot book. <laughs> interrogation of the criminal justice system <laughs> yeah we're, we're gonna get so into that but i'm very excited about it yeah um all right so now we're gonna talk about world development yes yes yes, yes. run the dominion jewels run the dominion jewels um is the name of this section which is about world development <laughs> um we can start with a, a part of the world development that I think is like worth digging into a little further, uh, which is we meet some uh, centaurs in this book, and centaurs obviously have some. I keep, I've pronounced this word differently every time I've said it, um, and it doesn't seem that hard. Um, I don't really know what the right way to pronounce it is. I think they're all right, but I like your variety. Centaur. Centaurs. <laughs> yeah, I've mm-hmm. gone for like four different diphthongs, which doesn't <laughs> seem like it should fit in that word. I love it. <laughs> uh centaurs uh have some some mythology surrounding them and obviously it's pulling from um some really classical mythology um a lot of the things about centaurs in this book do you guys want to talk about what some of your impressions were of these particular half man half horse (laughs) creatures they're not all men right that's interesting unlike in for example the harry potter series half person half horse uh right because i think a lot of sort of interpretations of traditional mythology like versions of centaurs have them as all men and they have them as you know a fairly rape-based culture where like what they do is they kidnap human women and have sex with them and that's their deal and so this isn't that but also they're not good (laughs) yeah they're still really bad and honestly still very rapey like about as rapey as they could be without being that exact thing yep well without being that but also like one of the really early scenes has one of the centaurs tell kel that she could give birth to good centaur Mm -hmm, babies mm -hmm. which like that's and then they offer to uh buy her from raul for the price of horses so which they call slaves they do do that and that's a whole other question like i'm starting to question in these books whether humans should even like be enslaving animals (laughs) because of like how smart they are and stuff well to be fair these horses probably wouldn't be it's only horses near the palace probably not yeah but like if they have that potential that's a whole ethical road that we can't right and can can centaurs communicate with horses and are they keeping or like i i don't know there's a lot of questions here why do they need horses as slaves? They can run as fast as a horse. Like, they need them less than humans That's do. That's a very good question. I don't know if we're supposed to assume that it's, like, part of their biology or what, but uh, they do have a thing where the female centaurs will attack the male ones if they're not given gifts, which just seems like a weird, like... Statement on uh, horse materialism? <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I was going to say, but sure. I mean, it read, I don't, I don't think that we biology. I don't think we can jump to biology as that being the reason for that. It feels like a cultural thing. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. It feels so different from like, you know, in, in the Dane books, we saw a lot of immortals and some of them were like the Stormwings where there were uh, like, 
oh, what we were we were made to do by the gods is to like defile battlefields, and that's just like how we live and survive. And humans think it's horrible, but that's what we do. Um, mm-hmm. And then in comparison to that, we had the Minotaur. I think it was a Minotaur, right? In yeah. in the Dane books, who literally just showed right. up to try to rape Dane, and that's what he does. Um, right, and there wasn't the same background as like God created or the gods created this creature too. Yeah, which I mean, maybe they did, but like it's a very sort of one note thing of like this is a rape creature that does rape. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Centaurs are weird to me because they feel sort of in the middle where they're trying, like you know, this group of centaurs is trying to live alongside humans. They clearly have some huge cultural differences that include. I don't know, thinking of horses as slaves, thinking slavery is okay. Um, and they, but the, yeah, I don't know. And also, I guess it's a cultural thing that, like, they have to give their women gifts or they attack them. I, it just seems very, like, it's blurring the line between these, you know, creatures that are like, oh, they just, they do rape because that's in their nature versus, like, you know, oh, they're just different from us and we have to learn to live with them. Because the centaurs clearly aren't mm-hmm. that. They, But it seems like they're just bad creatures and that's not a great, right. that's not very nuanced, you know? Right. So, sorry, to kind of um, make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying, like, there's not a good line between treating them as another group of people right. and treating them as an immortal the same way we've learned about immortal immortals where they can be inherently good or inherently bad. Right. I mean, they're not like an evil monster that you have to kill, but also it just seems like everything about their culture is so... I mean, I don't want to say inherently terrible, but like (laughs) it kind of is. Like they don't... They're not portrayed as having a lot of redeeming features, which is a weird way to to show or to still sort of tell a story about, you know, different groups trying to get along. I think mm-hmm. I don't know that I would say that the thing the Dane books were trying to communicate was that immortals can be inherently good or inherently bad. Because there isn't really a value judgment on that. Just that they are created mm-hmm. in ways that are different to how humans are created. Right. Um. So I don't know if that... But, but like, I think Abby's right that it's yeah. interesting that they don't seem to fit into any of Tamara Pierce's, like, morals about immortals. Like, they neither fit right. into this kind of moral right. of, like, well, like, their people are different, immortals are different, but you still have to try and get along. Mm-hmm. But they, like, they kind of, right. like, it's kind of like they do in this book have to try to get along with the centaurs. Mm-hmm. But, right. Like, pra- but it's like, but it is a yeah. practical thing. It's not quite as much the Dane message of because then we learn that like actually we're better when we're together, right? Um, right, right. Is, like cooperation isn't a moral imperative. It's like a practical choice, a, a consideration about how you make the world right. work. Which, to be yeah. fair, like that is a little bit more of a Kel thing. There is a lot more in Kel about like mm-hmm. you know sometimes you have to make the complicated but necessary mm-hmm. political choice over the like morally pure one yeah like that is a thing that is mm-hmm. that is right. specific to cal but i i don't feel like it works amazingly that way either yeah. so i don't know right i mean that's an interesting point because maybe we could look at it in the difference between like cal as a narrator looking at immortals dane as a narrator mm-hmm. looking at immortals um 
But we did talk a lot when we were discussing Dane about the idea that Dane has the same realization like six times of like, maybe there could be a non-evil Stormwing. <laughs> yeah. um, and like, uh, that's obviously a lot different than this perspective, which is treating centaurs a lot differently than just this like created species mm-hmm. that has the feature of being evil and then centaurs have this like culture that has a lot of bad cultural values yes yeah. which is yeah that that feels i don't know it, it feels strange to me because it's almost sort of like a a substitute for uh you know she she's not doing that anymore with like the Bajir, you know, there's not a different racial group where she's like, oh, they have upsetting values, but she is doing it with this well, immortal group. A little bit. A little bit. With the Imani. <laughs> get there. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, sure. But these are these centaurs are obviously, their cultural values are much more upsetting than pretty much any, you know, different ethnic group that we've seen that I can think of. Um, right. So, I mean, I guess, like, for me, looking at this situation... You know, thinking of the centaurs as people who have a different culture who have to coexist in Tortal, the only sort of good outcome that I can see would be like full assimilation of centaurs into Tortalan culture, and I'm not comfortable with that. No, not at all. I mean, both because like that's not how I like to approach like different cultural groups, and because as a cultural group, they're also kind of presented as having inherent somewhat biological needs that are like not compatible with like a just Tartalan society I think that's part of the weird thing about this is that like it's not really supposed to be a metaphor and it's not really supposed to like the actual centaur part doesn't seem to be like a metaphor it doesn't seem to have a moral (laughs) right (laughs) right like on one hand in the like reading it as a book um, perspective like you can't control that people still might read it as a metaphor and so i think it is interesting to look at it that way but i agree with you in like an author motivation way like i just i think part of the confusion is that i don't know how i'm supposed to read it you know like what's the ideal way for me to incorporate that into like the tortolan worldview right i guess in terms of like service to the plot the main takeaway from the centaurs is you know kel learns or continues the process of learning that you know, sometimes you have to make compromises and the world is not black and white and, you know, that type of thing. And also just that the the realm is in a very precarious position at this moment. That this yeah, whole totally. experiment of integrating um, all of these immortal groups into their, their realm is precarious. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of that makes sense on an in-universe level, but it's very hard as a reader to take this and not try to, like, you know, apply my own worldview to it. And it right. just really resists that, which is interesting. Right. And, like, a lot of times those um, things that are, like, like creatures that have consciousness but aren't human, mm-hmm. like, they're hard to incorporate into our world. Definitely. Views. So a lot of times there is a little bit more mm-hmm. guidance in the text, I feel like. Um, yeah. The other uh, thing that I know we wanted to talk about in this section was uh, the ordeal of knighthood and kind of how that fits into what we've learned about it in the past and uh the general system of education night education so can i just start with an amusing part about this yes 
I really sure, appreciate yeah. how Please. underwhelmed Kel is by the ordeal of knighthood. Because <laughs> yes. the thing is, she's been training yeah. her entire like yeah. page and squirehood for this ordeal. Like unintentionally, she's been doing all of this work on her fear. Uh, and then she gets there, and she's kind of like, "Hey, ordeal, this is stupid." And I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also like it seems to be kind of matched up to like uh, your how good you are and she's a good kid so it's not right that my bad. favorite part is like she <laughs> says like after it's like lobbed this vision at her of her like not being able to save people she's just like what so you're just mean to people who want to help people and like you know Kel, that's <laughs> yeah. just your fear you just happen to be such a good person that like the biggest fear it could come up with was you not being able to help like yeah, right. I mean, she's right. a good person, and she also has literally two fears. Her fears are heights and not being able right, to help. Which also, and she's already right. got heights yeah. done, so she's the good. The fact that right. she only gets two visions, like, doesn't Alana get like seven mm-hmm. or something? Like, yeah. she doesn't. I mean, she gets well, a few. Alana for did sure. have four distinct fears. <laughs> yeah, uh, if we I remember counted. correctly, cold, etc. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember all of hers, but yeah, she definitely had more than Cal. And but right, as like you said, Kel has really worked on her fears specifically. So by the time she gets right. to the chamber, she's just like, "Why? Why <laughs> is this happening? This is silly." Yeah, yeah. Also, like I think it's a good fear to show because like people who are helpers, like this is, I think, a pretty common like point of fear or angst or whatever. The idea that you can't always do yeah as much as you mm-hmm. want to be able to do. So it's interesting to see that represented. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to talk about with the Chamber of the Odeal is, I guess, sort of the the history of it, which we don't know that much, but we do know a few things. Um, we know that it's been in use for centuries, which is interesting to me because we know that there were female knights one century ago, and recorded history definitely goes that far back. So they're like there have definitely been female knights who went through the ordeal before and they definitely have records of that. I'm so certain of this. So I'm really right. curious about like how the, the in-universe conservatives reconcile that with their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Right. And at this point too, like it would be easy to read, oh, if there were female knights that recently, it must have been a different system. But this kind of confirms that that wasn't the case. Right. Yeah. And I'm really curious about just where the chamber of the ordeal came mm-hmm. from. Like, did humans make it? Is it a god thing? Is it a, you know, is there, I, it seems like there's some sort of right. immortal being in there. Where did that come right. from? <laughs> Who set this up? I vaguely thought Mithras had something to do with setting it up, but maybe I'm entire, maybe? entirely imagining that. Well, it, it they do have a, I mean, the the altar outside, it has a sun on it, which is a Mithran and thing, and he is a warrior god. Definitely Mithran priests oversee part of the ceremony, but that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily But Mithran mean, priests do like everything yeah. in Tortal. It's true. Abby, when you started saying where it came from, I definitely thought you were going to ask the most Abby question, where is it? And try and place it on a map. <laughs> okay. You always want to know about the geography. Well, we know it's in the palace and chorus, so like I've got that covered. <laughs> Just wondering where it is on a map. <laughs> I could actually point to it on the map in this book because it's a very small scale or like large scale. I don't know how that works. 
You know, it's, um, it would just be in the dot. We need course. a map of the palace yeah. so we can answer both this question and our previous question about the sizes of the rooms for pages. <laughs> we do need that. Yeah, I also that. want to know about where the um, the queen's practice yards are because they're like by the stables, but also by her quarters. I do need a layout <laughs> of the palace very bad. <laughs> um yeah great we'll ask for that the next time they publish a map we've already seen this map we don't need it we need if, a new yeah. one that's much i know smaller. we say don't tell us things from books we haven't read but also if this is in like tortala spies guide please tell us Ooh, yeah that's the one thing that you can tell you us. can tell us about maps but nothing else yes you know what's interesting about the chamber of the ordeal <laughs> is the- what's interesting about it abby What's interesting about the Chamber of the Ordeal is there's a point where Kel says something like, uh, the, like, the door to the chamber seemed more real than the surrounding palace. Hmm. And I I don't know. So I guess I should mention that I've seen a comic on the internet, which I will absolutely reblog on our Tumblr, that is a, um, someone's headcanon for how the Chamber of the Ordeal came to exist. And they, their version of it is just that somewhat that it was not actually a human built structure that uh, mm. early Tortolans, I think, just like found it in the woods. And then if that were true, that would mean that they built their whole palace around it. I don't know if I necessarily oh. buy that headcanon, but I am interested in the idea that maybe they did not intentionally create the Chamber of the Ordeal. I'm very interested in that and also like fairly convinced by it, I would say. Based on how it works. Yeah, I think I've always assumed that the chamber is, like, not human magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Like, I at agree. the very least, it's, like, an existing creature that they harnessed. But, yeah, I would totally buy that, like, it was just there or, like, the old ones made it. They haven't shown up since Alana, but, like, maybe. Wow, uh, what if the Chamber of the Ordeal was an old oh one? Oh my god, I love it! <laughs> old ones theories! Are they buildings? Is that what they are? <laughs> well, I I don't know. We don't really know what the chamber of the ordeal is. I feel like uh, there's some you know sometimes in the books it just refers to it as the chamber, but sometimes it indicates that there's like a being that exists in the chamber, and I don't know that we know which of those is yeah. more true. Maybe neither right. of them are more true, and they're uh, both equally true simultaneously. <laughs> also possible. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we we do have precedent for that, honestly, with Chitral, yeah. who is both a mountain range and a specific ape. <laughs> I was going to mention earlier that the thing that I'm reminded of most with Chamber of the Ordeal was Chitral, but it okay. felt silly at the time, and now it feels less silly, so thanks for validating <laughs> But yeah, I really like the idea of the Chamber of the Ordeal as, like, yeah, not not only not human magic, but some, like, an ancient existing thing that they sort of harnessed for this purpose. Maybe not even very right. intentionally, but I'm really, like... I would love to read some fan fiction about the creation of the Chamber of the Ordeal, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, I think especially because, like, to me, it does feel so different from other specifically, like, human enchanted objects that we encounter. Otherwise, like, it's very different, especially because we see things that are, like, enchanted long term for, like, utility, like the Mm -hmm. map that can do Google Earth (laughs) stuff. Um, But I did call it Google Maps map. (laughs) (laughs) but we don't really see stuff that like has these deep long-lasting enchantments right um, i mean it's existed for hundreds of years it can you know see your your like entire internal self you know and 
Um, also, it can do virtual reality like a holodeck. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, which I think is interesting. I mean, it just brings up interesting questions, too, about, like, the magical world building. Because, like, the magic in Tortal, compared to a lot of other fantasy series, I think is kind of, like, small scale. Like, when people do really big things, they're presented as so big and so consequential and so unique to mm-hmm. the specific three people who can do big things. Um, so I think it kind of reminds you that, like, oh, the magic in these books are t- is typically not that um, impactful, which is important because we need to have characters that are good at other things and yeah what matters that they're good at other things yeah. like fighting Speaking and of, punching i don't want to move before people are ready but that was a very nice transition into like our extra dominion jewel world building which we got dropped in this book oh yeah uh yeah, yeah we can do that because Let's we that. like got a filled in plot hole real quick here where they like blink <laughs> right. and you miss it we're like oh yeah the reason that john cannot just use the dominion jewel is because like it has to draw that power from somewhere and that can be catastrophic um see right. this famine that nobody knew about yeah and right. right i think that's uh um that's a big i mean there's no like it wouldn't have come up in previous books because the alana books end before it would have happened and the dane books start after it would have stopped but um I think that that is a really good, solid, in-universe justification for uh, why magic that humans do is generally relatively small scale. Because, um, you know, the Dominion Jewel allows John to, like, draw on the power of the land. But usually when humans do magic, they're just using their own sort of internal energy. And the energy of one person is not that much, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Right, actually, that kind of ties everything together. Right, as like yeah. a, right, a exactly. Because yeah, this is one of those worlds where if you do too much magic, you die. Right, like you can just like. I think yeah. so. Yeah, and definitely, right. like if you do a big amount of magic, you have to sleep for three days. And right, that type so of it's stuff. just that on a larger scale. Right, cool. even. Yeah. Right, even Alana, who can pull power uh, from the mm-hmm. goddess, like is shown to have consequences just from channeling mm-hmm. the power. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Numer, who's you know the biggest, most powerful wizard ever, whatever. <laughs> You know, I think he had to sleep for 24 hours after he turned a man into a tree, which is not really like, you know. That's not huge. Right, it's not huge, but in terms of like magic that you can imagine, but obviously it's a pretty big sort of shift in the world if you're trying to do it with the energy that one person creates. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I really personally prefer fantasy that has those limitations on yeah definitely magic yeah have we talked before on this i think we have right uh talked about the the inaccurate historical view that commoners used to marry in their young teens or whatever we have talked about uh, we it. We did. However, it did show up in both directions in this one, mm-hmm. which was interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like. Yeah, because very early in the book, um, when they're talking about Cal as a squire, they say like, "Oh, were she common, she would be married and having babies right. at fourteen. And also which, that as a noble, she wouldn't be thinking about marriage and babies for another couple years. So implying that on average, nobles get married several years later, later than commoners, yeah. which is just entirely historically right. inaccurate. But then later, right. they like kind of flip it and are like, oh, if you were a commoner, you'd have a whole ton of control over your sexuality. Whereas if you were, whereas like as a noble, you never would have, which is like right. basically contradictory unless right. they think that all of the commoners decide to get married at 15. Like, it's a little confusing. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
And also because there were like betrothals. Is that how sure. you say that word? Um, there are people who are betrothed when they're quite young in the books who are noble, which mm-hmm. is yeah, um, historically accurate. So, For like the historically accurate yeah. reasons of like somebody needs to like make an alliance and so you right Right. i mean yeah Yeah. clearly if you think about it for a second obviously it would it would be more beneficial for nobles to have the ability to marry young because they need that that you know method of moving property around and like you know making alliances and stuff and commoners don't need that but i i mean maybe it's just a tortolan you know, custom to have very long long engagements because Cleon is has been engaged. We don't really know how long, but he is a he's a squire and then he's a knight and he's still engaged and hasn't gotten married. So I mean maybe right. they just do that stuff with engagements and then don't marry the nobles until they're much older. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um do we have any other comments that we want to fit into world building? I have one really fast comment on world building there's multiple mentions of printing in this book, and I just want to know if they have printing presses. <laughs> no, no. Is the Industrial Revolution at hand in Tortal? <laughs> that might be the next book. <laughs> <laughs> like, we post Alley, it's just, like, steampunk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, that's it, though. All right. Um, so now we're going to move into a little bit more character development. One section we've been doing a little bit uh, for the Kel books, we're calling to Kellen back, uh, and we wanted to briefly compare Kellen and Alana. Uh, for these books, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how they, uh, the relationships that Kellen and Alana respectively have with other women and as role models for other women kind of differ um, between the series, because in this book we do get Kel meeting women who are saying, oh, I want to be a knight as well, which is cool. Um, yeah, this was a part I really loved about this book, this idea that, like, Kel was so important as a role model for these young girls. Even though Alana had already existed, like, Kel needed to come along because, like, Alana was kind of too special. I mean, right, Alana was a one-off, kind of. Yeah, right. yeah she was an Alana's exception, and so no one, yeah, could really see them as her, whereas a lot of people mm-hmm. can see themselves as Kel. Right, and, well, and also it's just so much easier to, you know... I mean, it's just, it's so much easier to be the third or the fifth or the tenth female knight than it is to be the second one, you know. Right. The, by then, you're you're not, um, you know, Alana was blazing a trail, but no one knew that she was doing it. Everyone can watch right. Kel do it and say, "Oh, I could join that group," you know. Mm-hmm. Right, especially because Kel is doing it overtly. So some of the, like, uh, I don't want to call them accommodations because, <laughs> like, obviously she can do everything, but um, the like. Well, what's a good word for that? The systems. It's getting more systematized with Cal. Like, uh, a woman could go in under the same condition. Somebody else could go in under the same condition. Then they wouldn't have to have the same arguments about, like, oh, should they be under probation for a year? Like, they did that. They figured that out, you know? Yeah, right. And, you know, where do they take baths and stuff? Like, clearly there's a system in place. I mean, it's not a great system, but there's at least some precedent. Right. Yeah, a exactly. lot of that stuff is still a pre- a problem for Kel, but it's like it's doable. She's doing it. Yeah. Um, right. And like if they had to be under probation, that wouldn't be good, but like the same debate, the same level of controversy might not be mm-hmm. um on 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 them. Right. And and you know, what we see a lot of in this book is that not only do they get to, 
you know, know that a woman is doing these things, but they actually get to watch her joust and be better than men who are way older than her and, uh, you know, know that she's doing that as a girl and she's openly a girl and it's wonderful. Yeah. And then as well for character development, uh, we could talk a little bit about Kel's relationship with mm-hmm. Cleon. Mm. Uh, yeah. So in this book, we see Cal enter a romantic relationship with Cleon, which is kind of like teased in the previous mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Someone want to say something about I it? I have like no feelings about the relationship. I never have. Like not even when I was a kid. Like mm-hmm. I don't hate it. I just there's n- I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think when I fine. first read these I didn't really understand the idea of shipping as a thing you could do yet like I didn't really understand that you could have feelings about a, a relationship other than it's canon or it's not canon <laughs> that sure is it on is the page so I was like not. okay it's canon moving on um but yeah I I really you know it's right. fine I think it's, it, it's yeah fine. it's fine yeah. and it certainly is like um I think interesting insofar as it gives, um, like it lets Kel think out a lot of issues about like herself on the page, um, and that's mm-hmm. cool to see and interesting mm-hmm. to see. And I think is it's good modeling, which I know we sometimes talk about, and is a real thing, right? Yeah, yeah. there's good communication. There's talking. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna leave yeah. some of this, I think, for like kind of more of a feminism corner because right. i think this is really central yeah. to, to the yeah. feminism of this book um but yeah but, definitely yeah. but I, it is also part of you know kel learning to be an adult which is a lot of what she does right. in this book right and i i like seeing her as an adult learning to navigate mm-hmm. relationships because you know that's a good thing to like show as a kind of development i think is people kind of being like oh this is how you talk to people <laughs> you're trying to have these whatever kind of permanent relationship yeah. with or um yeah Cal doesn't seem all that excited about that, about the relationship, but I think that's just kind of who she is. I mean, I like is. that it's a, a casual yeah. relationship. You know, it's not it's not her main focus because her main focus is becoming right. a knight. Right. But she's enjoying it. Right. She's having and fun. And I, I like that as development, too. Cal is somebody who can, like, enter these casual relationships and something that we know about her is that she's always going to have this strict focus on the way that she impacts the world as a knight and then also have her friendships and her relationships mm-hmm. and the other things going on with her. That's cool, Cal development. I also definitely read it as a kid as like, oh, no one's excited about men, so. <laughs> okay, I think we, we should table some of this for queer culture, for, or queer corner, whatever we call our sections, I don't know. Queer Every culture. Every queer corner. This, this podcast is queer culture. That's true. Because I say this it is. This podcast is queer culture. Shelby, talk about Cal as a leader. This is a little bit about Raul, but only because he made the speech. So earlier I said that there are some things in this book that, like, I legitimately, like, can't deal with any book that doesn't have it. And one of those is how well it displays Kel as a leader and depicts her as a leader. Like, it is very, like, my pet peeve in all books that I've read since this book is, like, the leader who is a leader because we told you they are. And because, like, yeah, people definitely. follow them, yeah. even though I have no idea why they're following them because I wouldn't. Like, Kel is like somebody who I would follow and like it shows that and it shows that because like you see the scenes where um she like 
figures out what to do in, like, the bandit scene, but also in this one, like, later when she has to take control of uh, Dom's squad. Like, you see it on the page, mm-hmm. but then also you get this great speech from Raul where he talks about, like, the four kinds of warriors, which is, like, legit mm-hmm. one of my favorite speeches in all of Tamara Pierce. Right, so refresher for people who haven't necessarily read the book yes. today or yesterday. Yes. <laughs> Don't expose us like that. Raul says that there are four types of leader. Um, no, four types of warrior, right? Four types of warrior, yes. There are four types of warrior. Um, Alana is a lone hero who goes into dark places and brings light. Wait, I'm forgetting one. There's soldiers. Is the oh, one. sure. There, there's your common knight uh, who, uh, you know, defends their own lands, does things with groups. You know, that one maybe is less... I don't know. That one's less, like, broadly applicable, I feel like. But if you're talking about, like, what type of knight you want to be, then it's relevant. Yeah. In in world, it's relevant. There's a soldier who can do what they're told and, that, and you know, do that competently, but that's basically their limit. And then there's the commander who knows what they should be doing and also what the people around them should be doing. And Kel has shown flashes of being a commander and uh, Roel is trying to train her to be more of one. And she's great at it. Um... But yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of fiction really mashes together the Alana heroic archetype with the leader and just says, these are the same thing. If you're a hero, you're also a leader. But I do really like that this book makes that distinction. Because it's also like what I see in everyday life. Like there really are people like that who like see the people around them are good at thinking about the way the people around them think and putting them in places where they'll succeed and like I mean in the real world that's more of like who's a good manager Um, but like (laughs) that's such a distinct skill from the other skills that are displayed in most fantasy heroes and and I just love Kel so much as as a character for Mm -hmm. displaying it so well when she's not exactly an Alana type right and it doesn't devalue what Alana does. Um, no, it's just, it, no. it makes that distinction, which is really valuable. Yeah, which is really cool. Right. I also really like it as kind of like a meta commentary on like how you write a protagonist. <laughs> I think that's really cool. And it did make me think about like how I would categorize other protagonists in books. Like, you know, um, you see like Harry Potter, who's like a reluctant hero and like sometimes a capable leader, but like also has different mm-hmm. skill sets, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's cool to like, I don't know, I always got to bring up Harry Potter. But, um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, Harry Potter is an example where they're more, you know, he, he has more like, like leadership skills that are actually shown on the page than many uh, fantasy heroes, right. but he is still the combination type where, you know, a lot of the time, he just goes places alone and does fantastic things that no one else could do. But then sometimes also people turn to him to lead. And I guess he just right. can do both of those things. But most people really can't do both of those things. Isn't Ron canonically a better leader or strategist? Anyways, let's He's not talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. This is not a Harry Potter podcast. Well, we say that. <laughs> and yet we bring it up so often. <laughs> Talk a little bit about Raul. Yeah, Raul. Yeah. Raul is the only good man in the world. <laughs> True feminist ally. This is not the feminist section. He's just This is just a fact just about a really him. good guy. Uh he's he's our large friend. I mean to transition. Boy, he's a really good <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also one other thing that I love every time I reread these books is remembering how much of an introvert he is. Like mm-hmm. as an introvert that warms my heart. He just hates parties, guys. I mean, 
He hates parties, but, uh, like, one of the most hilarious things in these books to me is that he and Burry eventually figure out, oh, I like parties when my friends are there. <laughs> <laughs> like, how did it take you so long to learn that? But that makes so much sense. Like, I hate parties. And then every time I go to, like, a dinner party with just my friends or, like, literally anything that's not, like, loud and lots of people and my friends are there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, right. yeah, I like people if they're my people. Yeah, no, I, I love that both Raul and Burry have that realization <laughs> as, like, middle-aged adults. <laughs> <laughs> they're so good. But, yeah, I mean, Raul, he's a great leader. He also really has that same protector impulse that Kel has because he, you know... He has really heavily recruited among the Bajir. He takes in Kel, the girl. He also takes in the kid from the disgraced family that no one else will hire. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's very consistent about that. I also loved specifically the Laurent part. Like, mm-hmm. there's lots to unpack about Laurent, but like specifically the fact that like okay, so like he takes in Kel, like who is like kind of on his on his team, so to speak. Like he's friends with Alana. Mm-hmm. He's like absolutely a liberal. Um. So, like, him taking in a, uh, Kel absolutely makes sense. But, like, Laurent is, like, you know, from one of these families that tried to kill his friend John. But mm-hmm. he's, like, but it right. but it wasn't him. Right. So it's still not fair. So I'm still going to take him in. And I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. And even though, like, right. l- like, Laurent is kind of, he's kind of ungrateful. He's kind of a cruddy boy. Um, he, <laughs> I love that cruddy boy. I love that cruddy boy. I mean, I, yeah. I don't love him that much, but I didn't really, like, boy over there. I, I was, like, kind of charmed by him he did do like a really uh a kind of really nasty trick at the beginning garbage move a garbage yeah. move at the beginning well right he's he's definitely a no, cruddy he's definitely boy a but cruddy I, boy. yeah but right i mean he did like see you know not that this necessarily excuses no. him like playing a mean trick on cal but um you know the book does have a fair amount of empathy mm-hmm. for him or like i have a fair amount of empathy the reading book the book does. uh because um you know, he he's, like, by no fault of his own, is really an outcast mm-hmm. in, you know, some ways that are fairly relatable to Cal. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. uh, she comes in, Raul has never had a squire before because Laurent was doing that stuff for him. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he gets a squire, and obviously Laurent feels like his position is threatened, and that doesn't excuse his um, actions, but, I wanna talk about- you know, I do have a lot of empathy for him as a yeah, character. I want to talk about... The specific thing he did in this care in this in this section because the thing he the thing he did was um tried to set up Kel to take um alcoholic beverages in to uh to Raul um yeah. when Raul is a recovering alcoholic. I like his uh pragmatism because we hear about him you know, he clearly shares that he used to have a problem with alcohol mm-hmm. and he's now chosen to abstain and that helps him be this effective leader. And I think he's being an effective leader very deliberately by sharing that and kind of showing that journey. So I like that he's the kind of leader who will admit, you know, like I have what could be seen as, I'm not saying that I want to portray it as that, but that what could be seen as like a weakness and he uh, shows that as like, no, this is how you can make it a strength and this is how you can have this journey that helps you become, uh, you know, a person that you want to be. And I really like him as a leader who will like share faults to build up other people. Yeah, I like that he's very, he's very casual about it. And we don't, you know, even though we see him as a kid and a young man in the Alana books, we never saw him actually have the 
problem. We just saw him right. sort of effectively deal with it. And like, you know, not that not that it would be um it would be bad to like see him have the problem, but I just like to see it, you know, it's not it's not a thing that's actively affecting his life, but it's still you know, a, like a part of who he is yeah. and something he has to deal right. with. No, I like that um, it is this, and I like this that depiction. Yeah, kind of destigmatize, like both in that, like Raul. The fact that Raul shares it seems to show that he doesn't, like, he doesn't see it as like a huge stigma thing to share. Like he's like, yeah, it's a thing, but it's over. Like it's not over. It's still a thing that I have to deal with. But like I'm doing that. I'm dealing with it. It's fine. Like I really love yeah. the way that that showed up. Um. But to get back to where we started, because we did kind of, yeah, in that move away from Gus's point about, like, it doesn't show up originally as him sharing this with Kelly. It shows up originally because Laurent uses it in his attempt to right. hurt Kel. Um, so, Gus, did you want to say something about that? Yeah, did we lose the point um, you were making? Hmm, what was the point I was making? Let's see. Uh, I think... It's the kind of thing where a lot of times when information about a character such as this, which is personal information, is revealed um, through like a prank or a trick. It can come across as um, really gross when that information then is communicated by people who are not the person whose information it is, you know, like. Right. It can be sort of kind of like a malicious outing. Right of this secret. Yeah, and I think it's a thing that sometimes when stories, you know, sometimes in telling stories, we we or, you know, authors might forget that and like forget that the way that we communicate um information about characters like is like it's like an agency issue. Um I mm-hmm. I do agree that in this case it did really feel like the sort of thing that Raul wasn't keeping under wraps. Yeah, um, and I think this is definitely a little bit of, like, a Watsonian versus yeah. uh, thing where, like, because, you know, on the on the larger outside scale, like, why do we choose to convey these things through pranks? Like, within universe, you can believe that, like, this is something that the own generally knows and that he's mm-hmm. been very open with mm-hmm. and that... Kel would get told because it's relevant to her duties at this particular point and like that within universe like it might make sense for somebody who's not Raul to say it and that might not be like a terrible thing um but yeah it's it's it is once Mm -hmm. again like and this isn't the first time we've had this I don't remember what the last time it was but like yeah people other than the Mm -hmm. the relevant person telling pieces of people's history a secret yeah 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 or not necessarily a secret, a secret, I guess. Right, I guess but that's personal partially information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Wow. Shortening the king zone to just the own has like a, a weird culture. <laughs> also, I keep oh. misreading it as Owen because it's capitalized. I yeah. did that so many times. <laughs> <laughs> the king's <laughs> Owen. The Owen Seven. didn't even appear that often His in this book. Owen. I know, and I missed him. Yeah, <laughs> that's not for. We All don't right. probably don't need to cover that in the character no. section, but there it is. Here's my very special character section. I call it Owen. I miss <laughs> Owen. <laughs> he was here, but we still I miss wasn't him. going to bring this up, and I do yeah. think this should all go in bloopers. But I do have a bullet point that just says Owen. <laughs> <laughs> I like I didn't put them in my notes but I underlined so many things in my book that were just things that Owen said 
I have a bullet point that says, where is Owen? You could put him in a pouch just like John. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, are we ready for some fast bio and links? Uh, let's start with some fast linguistics. Yeah. Abby, you said you had something I do you have to some talk stuff about. to talk about. I'm just going to list some things for you guys right here, right now. Um, one, Hoshi is the Japanese word for star. Naginata is the Japanese word for glaive. Kimono and obi are two Japanese words for pieces of clothing. <laughs> Those ones are also arguably English, honestly. Sakuyo is a Japanese proper name, and Yama is a Hindu god. That one might have been by accident, not sure. <laughs> um, so the of all the Yamani words used in this book, the only one that is not a Japanese word is... Uh, Shukasen. I also I, found this out. I why? <laughs> but it's also like slightly close because the actual word for that yeah. fan is Tessen. Like last same yeah. same last right. Same I mean that, that one's more like you know I feel like that's a a classic thing to do is you know if you want to like take a a thing from a culture and put it in your fantasy world just like slightly change the name like. You know, right. that's more like what not? I would expect. But why did she put a bunch of actual <laughs> Japanese words in there? Right. Like, I'm like, why not go all the way and just use Japanese or use way less Japanese right. and just do something else? It's very, I don't like, know, it's very strange. This is another thing where it's like, okay, if people knew more linguistics, then they could probably do a better job of evoking languages without literally using the languages. Mm -hmm. Because, like, Japanese does have... Um, like, different phonetic syllabification rules that are, like, so different from English that they're really noticeable uh, for English speakers, which is why it's kind of, like, it's generally kind of easy for people to, like, imitate Japanese. Mm -hmm. But you could just use those rules to make up words that sounded pretty Japanese. Not that that's necessarily a good thing to do, but I'm just saying, like, why not why do that? Do if you're going to do that once. Yeah. Yeah. Why only do it once? Like, what? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, right. I'm kind of weirded out in general by her just like taking Japanese words and saying these are Yamani words, right? Uh, right. Like, and then like, do I want her to just make up convincingly Japanese-ish words? Like, I feel not like that would really. be worse. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, think... I don't really know what the right thing to do here is. I mean, it, like, you could make an argument that all the Tortolans are speaking quote-unquote common, and that's just English, so why shouldn't Yamani just be Japanese? But it does feel a little weirder when it's not, like, the language that the book is written in that the author speaks. Right, but, like, do we know that that's just English? I, like, we're gonna get into some weird territory <laughs> if we entertain this for too long, but, like, how do we know that it's not translated? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's quite a path to go down. Yeah. No, and I definitely think, like, I think there's potentially an argument for doing taking a, another language and i've seen this done other uh, like she's not the only person who has ever written a fantasy world mm -hmm. where the other country just speaks a different human earth language um human earth language. <laughs> and like i don't think that's like inherently terrible in some ways i think what we have here is kind of the worst option which is to mm. like take another group's language but not 100 percent because that just kind of means you're doing it badly yeah like we're taking the other person the yeah, other group's right. language but also like eh, not 100 percent. and like it reminds me of some discussions of cultural appropriation that talk about the difference as partially 
the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation is partially about how well you're doing it, right? Like, mm-hmm. if... Yeah. I mean, there are other factors, but that's part right, of it. Right, no, I'm, yeah. cultural appropriation is, like, possibly the most complex social justice yeah. <laughs> topic you could talk about. Um, but one of the many factors you can talk about is, like, cultural appropriation as being the one where you just kind of take the parts you want and ignore everything else versus mm-hmm, cultural right. appreciation mm-hmm. being, like, actually spending the time to learn about the culture as it really is. And, like... Which, like... Right. This is a very weird example because the fan... the pointy fans the battle fans those are a real japanese right. thing that she took and changed the name of well and also changed some other right. things about was the other like I, mm-hmm. I was having trouble finding like a lot of information about it but from what i can tell um it was not really a, f- a thing specific like in the books in the kel books it seems to be specific to yamini women and in mm-hmm. real world it seems mm-hmm. to be maybe specific only to samurai men Okay. And also the fan game, like there is actually ironically a fan toss game in Japan, but it is literally nothing like this fan toss game. I was looking up <laughs> videos on YouTube. It's just a completely different game. Right. So like that part's weird. Right. right. And like I feel like part of what makes me most uncomfortable about it is um is particularly as like a white reader knowing I'm reading a white author, um the idea that this is could somehow be like a loophole or a backdoor or a weasel out where if somebody tried to say like you did this wrong about Japanese culture uh, the author might try and go like but it's not Japanese culture it's Yamani (laughs) culture Uh Um, so I don't like that and I think that you know if you basically you know reiterating if you're going to do Japanese culture do it really well and put the work in and if you're not going to just don't do it you know if you're gonna we've said this before actually i think specifically about your money culture uh if you don't think you can do it well maybe like it's time to put that work in maybe that's a sign that it's time to put the work in. yeah i mean that's also like you know what sensitivity readers are for and that type of thing right and that would be i think an example of putting (laughs) in the work (laughs) i i just had one additional thing to say on this topic which is that um it's weird to me like most of what the time what happens when um uh when Kel pulls out her glaive is Tortolan say, What is that? <laughs> oh my so god. So why is there a Tortolan word for it that's glaive that's separate from the Yamani word for it? <laughs> so I mean, to Don't be know. fair, like in the real world, like Naginata's Japanese glaives are a thing. The English word glaive also does exist, but I don't know much about the context of where and when it's existed in Western. I mean, glaives, I think, have been a thing in the West for a while. Yeah. It's right, not like, because, you know, Kel is basically introducing this weapon to right. Tortal. No, that's a right. Weird. I was trying to look it up, and I don't think that I really know how to do that especially well. <laughs> um, but what I, from what I could tell, like, glaives in our world, the real world, are like a distinct weapon that developed distinctly from the Yeah, I mean I'm not sure they developed weapon. entirely distinctly, but I think technically speaking, Naginata is a separate weapon from the glaive and the glaive is the European version and Naginata is the Japanese version, which is not the case here. Yeah. So it's it is kind of weird. It's all kind of weird, honestly. Yep. Uh do we want to do some fast, fast bio? Yeah. Very fast bio. Why? Okay, so Why? I know there's one thing that we all wanted to comment on. Yes. Shelby, do you want to do that? Yeah. Why why do centaurs have human intestines and also horse intestines? 
they're they're a human and a horse <laughs> glued together. But does that mean that they have doubles of like which organs? All of them. Do they have two stomachs? How does the horse stomach get fed? Wait, no. I spent the last week studying the di- the digestive tract. Like, that was a thing I studied last week. And guys, I don't think this is news to you. Not for the purposes of this Not podcast. Not for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> I spent the last week on this one detail. <laughs> no, but, but, like, I don't think this is news to you guys, but, like, it's a tract. It's a single tube that goes mm-hmm. through you. Which means you can't just start right. in the mouth and go to the stomach and then the intestine and then the colon and then go back to the stomach. Okay, okay, new theory. <laughs> so where do the human intestines come theory, out? Theory, theory, theory. No, it's all one big long. It's all one big long system. The horse uh-huh. is all full of intestine. <laughs> no, that's so upsetting. Counterpoint. No. <laughs> Uh, my theory is that you've got your mouth, right? Your your human mouth. Only one mouth. Okay. And then that leads to two distinct digestive tracts, and the horse one is just longer, and it goes from the mouth straight into the horse. Does it, like, depend on what you eat? Like, if you eat some grass, does it go into the horse one? No, it's just, like, you have to, like, pick which one to swallow okay. into. And you, like, have to track how you have to keep both. Good. Like a giraffe. Mm-hmm. That's not what giraffes do, but in terms of it being a long path. If a centaur got pregnant, would it got pregnant in the human part or the horse part? I I'm not it's sure gotta be the horse part. have a horse uterus. Like, I'm not sure they're, like, I think uh, that it might stop before their hips. Before the horse hips or the human, human hips? hips. It's, there is no horse uterus because it's all intestine in there. God. Stop. So now we get to have a content warning for like centaur body horror. Yeah. yeah. yeah just normal body horror. I have a normal body and I'm horrified. <laughs> Sorry. The other thing I wanted to say about bio is the weird, um, so, like, in, I don't actually, I was gonna say in America, I don't know how prevalent this is, and also don't tell me, um, but if, (laughs) there's, like, the myth that if you touch a bird, the bird, a bird baby, then the mom and dad bird, (laughs) the parent birds, will smell it on the baby and not want the baby back, but, like, that's not true because birds can't really smell but, like, if you're around their nest, they might get scared off. And that's why you shouldn't mess with baby birds, I guess. But you should help also, them. Also, right, isn't it, isn't it bad to, like, move them? Because then, you know. Because they're very delicate. Yeah, yeah, well, and their parents might not be able to find them if you move them too far away. Right. So there's, like, other reasons. Yeah. But, like, they can't smell you. That's just, like, a myth. So that gets, like transposed onto the griffin baby as like a magical essence and that's weird i guess Except that it's reversed because it's not that right i think that's the reason i never connected those ever oh it's smelling the yeah. griffin on you yeah it's the, they it, they will murder you if you have touched their baby <laughs> which is not usually a myth about like crows no um so they do love murders oh, but i'm terrible <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Anyway, I connected it because they're like, you should never touch a baby griffin. And I was Uh like, like birds, but not. All right. So we don't have our typical palace gossip letter slash question, which is good because this is long. Um, But we did want to say thank you so much for the memes. We love you so much. Uh, They are all uh, we got. A couple of memes since our last episode sent to us, and they are so fun and lovely, and you can find them on our Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of them are definitely on the Tumblr, so check that out, tortallrecall.tumblr.com, if you want to see some really good memes about so Paige good. specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're really cute, and so I wanted to specifically thank those people because I was uh, thrilled. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, Thank you, Jayon the Poet on Tumblr and Catherine NZR on Twitter, who I think might be the same person. I think that's but the I... same person, yeah. Yeah. Um, but thank you to both of your uh, aliases. Um, <laughs> and thanks to at the aliens believe in you too. Oh, you guys said you don't say the ad on Tumblr. Whatever. <laughs> the aliens believe in you too also made us a charming meme. A lot of people are very inspired by the meme concept. Uh, Neil realizing all of his friends are babies. Um, so yeah. I think the the aliens believe in you too. Um, I don't know if I said that exactly right, but that Tumblr user has also previously made us a meme, I believe. Wow! If you go to the memes tag on our Tumblr, you can see all of these memes and more. Oh, thank you for tagging things. Yeah. Wow. Are we single handedly inspiring the Tortal meme market? I'm sure <laughs> we're not, but. Um, all right. I also wanted to thank a couple of people from our email. Uh, so Jim, thank you. Uh, Jim sent us in a really charming comparison of Owen and a young Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and I hope you guys all read that email because it was, it was so cute. Um, <laughs> Gotta check that um, out. Go find it. It's great. I'll, I'll like tell you about it after we finish yeah. recording. Um, Catherine, who did email us as a Merrick fan after Abby ba- oh, baited Merrick fans in our past episode. Um, <laughs> and then also Naomi and Ansi or Anzi. And then on our Patreon, I wanted to thank Starbit and our other new patrons. Reminder that if you do want a shout out on the episode, you need to comment on our post on our Patreon so that we know what to call you when we say your name. Um, And then I also wanted to um, plug that we are still taking suggestions for our new bonus episode um, from hitting a new uh, tier on Patreon. Uh, So that's a thread on our Patreon right now as well. Will it still be going on when this episode comes out? I think so. I think it'll be ending like the day that this episode comes out. Okay, so if you're listening to this the day we release it, (laughs) get on there. Um, And then after that, we'll have some voting to pick what our next bonus topic will be um it's been fun i'm seeing some suggestions that are like pretty different from what we've done in the past so that's exciting and then as well i think that we will be putting out another book rec list uh shelby's been putting that together some book recs that she has (laughs) (laughs) it looked pretty dumb when i looked at it i don't know um and then there's already a couple on our tumblr as well um which might be fun if you're looking for some new books to read all right. Thanks to our music, which is uh, "Green Sleeves" by Zeta. You can find it on SoundCloud. I think I've never personally done that. Um, and uh, yeah, we also have a Twitter that is Tortal Recall, and a Tumblr that is Tortal Recall, and a Patreon that is Tortal Recall, and an email that is Tortal Recall at gmail dot com. Correct. And maybe soon a Spotify. We'll tell you. 
are we working on that? Because I tried that a while ago. and I, like, I just said that earlier, so I thought I'd call back. It was a clever reference, oh, okay. Abby. <laughs> um, <laughs> Got it. Yes. Podcast? Wow. All right. Yeah, that's not our it. sign off. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, basically, Podcast. this is not our sign off. We <laughs> always definitely <laughs> arguing about our sign off for like at least 30 seconds before we actually say it. All right. See ya, Tortellini. coming around on Merrick. We don't have to talk about this, but like... (laughs) (laughs) No, he's actually way more of an entity than, say, like, Sever. Right, but yeah, the, the, like, the thing is that he's at a weird point where he's right between the characters who, like, never really do anything, but just their names are mentioned sometimes, and the characters that, like, actually do things, but I think we're gonna see a bunch more of him in Lady Night. Right, he gets a bit of character development in Lady Night. And I do, honestly, I do really like Merrick. I just don't like him as much as Neil. And Owen.